0: Hey there, good morning, Story family. Y'all doing good today? Good, good, good. Good to see y'all's faces and hear your voices. And I uh, hope y'all are enjoying yourselves here so far today, especially if you're new. I hope you found uh, the Story to be a real warm, welcoming community of faith. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and I'll do some teaching now for the next, oh, who knows how long. And um, I want to welcome those of you uh, online as well. You're part of The Story today, wherever you are um, joining us and tuning in. Just be sure, if you can, to check in with us in the comments section so we can say hi and uh, and know where you're tuning in from. Okay, uh, so a couple quick things before we get to today's message First of all, I, I want to thank everybody that came out yesterday to the, uh, the serve day over at our, our new home. It's very exciting. And, uh, and I had like 60, 70 people show up and work in the heat all day long, uh, restriping the parking lot, which... I didn't think we would do very well, but we did very well. And so you guys uh, outpaced my expectations. Not that I had low expectations of you. I've just seen that go horribly wrong in the past. But y'all are awesome and lots of other great things that happened. So thank you for that. Um, A couple things on the horizon. Um, The story is really having a blowout this fall for Fall Fest. Um, We're really thanking God for all of his goodness and provision. So uh, later this month, we'll have Fall Fest our staff has been really asking me to ask y'all for some help in one particular way, especially. Um, if you could go to the website this week, the story.church, find the, the Fall Fest registration page. You will see a link to our Amazon wish list. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but my, my hunch is we have some people in this church who love to shop. Is that right? <laughs> now you can shop for Jesus, okay? So you can get your priorities right, shop for Jesus, and uh, we have that wish list that will make that... Um, that event just go off great. It's going to be over at our new campus later this month, so thank you all in advance. For that, also you've heard me talk about prepare the way, which is our newly sort of introduced fourth quarter surge um, push that we're doing to really bridge the gap um, financially. Y'all know we've had a ton going on this year, a lot of wonderful things, and the thing about wonderful things, uh, wonderful things often cost money. So we have um, suddenly come into sort of possession of, uh, or at least uh, temporarily, we're renting over at the museum, uh, over at the the Heights and Timber Grove. We're renting here. But those campuses cost money. We've obviously purchased our new campus. That's cost a lot to uh, maintain and get ready as the school has opened up there and all of that. So we're just asking for folks who might uh, have that bandwidth, that capacity, to help us reach our fourth quarter goal. And we're about 20% of the way there, which is great, given that we just announced this push two weeks ago. So you can visit thestorychurch/prepare to find out more and make your commitment, uh, contribution there. So thank you all in advance. I know you all are going to come through like you always do, because God is good and you guys are faithful. So okie dokie. So we're going to get into today's um, message now. It is um, a message that's really close to my heart. This is part three of a 26-part series. So we're just getting started with a series called Acts of the Apostles. Um, And in this series, we're journeying through this New Testament book of Acts. It's a really underappreciated, I think, undervalued book in the New Testament. It's right there in the thick of it all, but people seem to not pay as much attention to it as we do the Gospels and Paul's letters, for example. Um, But Acts is right there. And today's part of Acts that we're looking at in the latter part of chapter 2, it really does tackle a question that I think is vital to our mission. So the mission at the Story Church if you're not familiar is to inspire a certain subset of people. We're not here just to inspire Christians to be better Christians, although if that happens that's a great byproduct of our mission, but the mission is to inspire non-religious people, skeptics, agnostics, atheists even people that just are not on board with Christianity at all, to inspire that subset of people to follow Jesus. And the question that's addressed in today's reading from Acts is a question that I hear maybe most often um, an inquiry that I hear from our target audience about Christianity, about Jesus, and what we're all about here at the church. And the question's basically this. What, if anything, is special or unique um, or exclusive or whatever about Christianity? Uh, maybe a, another way of saying it was would be, why do Christians speak and act as though we've got it? And sorry, not sorry to everybody else who has something less than what we've got, you know? And like, where do we get off saying our way is not just the best way, but the only way? On what authority do we say that? Based on what do we have this sort of bravado when it comes to the truth that we found in Christ? Now, first of all, I would say we need to check ourselves with our bravado, right? Somebody once told me that arguing with a Christian is like playing chess with a pigeon. Like no matter how good you are at chess, the pigeon's gonna knock the pieces over and strut around like he won. And sometimes that's how it feels to non-Christians to talk to Christians about what we believe versus what other people believe. So let's be careful about that. But at the same time, let's not shy away from the truth that we found in Jesus, which for us, let's not be ashamed of it. It is the truth, as best we can tell, The truth, not a truth. The truth, not my truth or your truth, but the truth that we found in Jesus. What is it about Christianity that makes it so special? Well, it wouldn't surprise any of you to hear me say, well, all of Christianity's specialness, uniqueness, credibility, if you will, rests with one man, right? Everybody would say, well, that's what a preacher would say, right? Obviously, all of Christianity's credibility hinges on Jesus, Right? If Jesus is for real, Christianity is for real. But let's peel back a layer and ask the question then, if that's the case, what makes Jesus so special? What makes him worthy of these overarching truth claims that Christians make about him being the way, the truth, and the life? You know, other than the fact that he said that, and we quote him, what gives us the authority or the right to say he's the one? That he's better than You know, better than Buddha. I know that's offensive to say out loud, but that's essentially what Christians believe. Not just that he's better than Buddha, better than Muhammad, better than secularism, better than your favorite politician, obviously, better than any other spiritual guru, leader, whatever you want to put him up against. We believe Jesus is better. Why? What is it about him that makes him better? Well, I would say just like there's one man on which all of Christianity's credibility rests there is one event about Jesus or having to do with Jesus on which all credibility about Christ rests. And many might think, based on how we celebrate in the world today, that that event must be Christmas because everybody, everybody celebrates Christmas, everybody the world over. Even angry atheists will stock up and go into debt to buy Christmas presents. It's the most fascinating thing in the world to celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? but, but, as much as we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus isn't what sets him apart. If we didn't know anything about his birth, we could still believe what we believe about Jesus. So it's not his birth that sets him apart. Is it his death? You know, we wear the crosses. We have crosses everywhere in the church, and, and, and Christians the world over have always lifted up the cross as sort of the symbol of our faith. Is it the cross that sets him apart? No, it's not the cross. He wasn't the only person who died on a cross. You know, lots of others died on crosses. Lots of other revolutionaries and upstarts and gurus, teachers, spiritual leaders, politicians, everybody that's tried to do something worthwhile in the world has faced persecution and in some cases even government-sanctioned execution like Jesus. So that's not what makes him special. So it's not his birth. It's not his death. And it's not even anything in between his birth or his death, his teachings and miracles, etc. It's just the resurrection. The resurrection alone is what sets Jesus apart from everyone else who people want to put on the same plane as Christ, just the resurrection. And I'm not just coming up with this in 2023. This is what Christians have always believed. Even if Jesus did everything else, the Bible says he did. Christians believe he did, but he didn't walk out of his tomb. We're wasting our time here. You should not be here. Christianity is worthless without the empty tomb. And and you can question everything else, everything else you read in the Bible. If you come to Christ and you're not sure about the Bible, but you're sure that he walked out of his tomb, that's all it takes to be a Christian. To believe that, profess it, give your life to him, that's it. And then he'll work with you throughout the rest of the Bible. He'll show you how the virgin birth could have happened. He'll show you why Leviticus makes sense. Once you settle what you believe on uh, about the, the resurrection. And this is what Christians always believe. Is take, for example, from, this is around the year 50 AD. So this is, you know, first-generation Christianity. First Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 19. And then, I promise, we'll get to Acts. But, uh, this is what Paul wrote. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile, worthless, and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So everything hinges on the resurrection. And if you're sitting here questioning Christianity, welcome. By the way, I'm glad you're here. I just want you to know the only issue that really should be before you is what you make of the resurrection. The Christian claim that Jesus walked out of his tomb. And if you question that, I just want you to have the same courage in doubting your own doubts about Christianity as you have in doubting Christianity, if you'll humor me for the next few minutes, okay? So, uh, today's events from Acts chapter 2 take place almost two months after the resurrection, so this is fresh. Like, two months isn't that long ago. Two months, just for reference, was the Maui wildfires. That story's still in the news in in some ways. So that's how much time had passed between the resurrection of Jesus and the events of today's uh, reading from Acts chapter 2. Let's dig into it. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 uh, is where we will begin. If you want to take your Bible or um, maybe uh, maybe a Bible app or something, you also have study guides, although those don't have the scriptures in them verbatim, but I hope you'll follow along in a Bible one way or another. Acts 2, verse 22. This is Simon Peter. Fellow Israelites, he said, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death because, remember this, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why would it be impossible for death to keep its hold on Christ? Verse 25 David, King David, this this is an allusion to the uh, Old Testament. King David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue, is, my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So the question is that Peter's about to address, who's David talking about? Because it could not have been himself. If you read it closely, and Peter tells us why in the next part of his sermon, verse 29, fellow Israelites... I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. What's he saying? David said that his holy one would not see decay. Well, David's over there decaying right now, like they knew where his tomb was in this time, and Jerusalem's not a big place, area Why? So he's like right over there, decaying, rotting, like the rest of us will rot in our bodies, and our flesh. So he could not have been talking about himself. Verse 30, But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne, on his throne, David's throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body, the Messiah's body, see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So by this time, Jesus had appeared to around... 500 people, or more than 500 different eyewitnesses. 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, this is another Psalm, this is Psalm 110 that he's quoting from King David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let's stop there for a second. So the short version of what Peter is saying here in his first sermon, which is pretty pretty solid first sermon. Can we all agree? Like, have you ever heard a preacher give his first sermon? It didn't go like this, did it? All right. So Peter had a good teacher. Apparently, Jesus Taught him well, but Peter's on fire here. And the short version is that, look, guys, King David, great patriarch of Israel, second most important figure in the Old Testament behind Moses. King David, great guy. But even David knew there would be a greater one to come. How do we know David knew that? Because he spoke of God's Holy One not seeing decay, not giving in to death. And that wasn't David he spoke of. That was someone else, someone higher than David. The question is, who could be higher on earth than the king? The king of Israel. Israel is the most important kingdom on earth, according to the Old Testament. Who could be higher than the king of the most important kingdom on earth? And and he doubles down on this. He says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Look, the Lord, clearly the Lord is God, but who is David's Lord? He's like, he's saying there's someone between the Lord in heaven, and the King of Israel. And in the, the, the ancient mindset, that would not have computed. Kings were often venerated in their own right, right? They were worshiped in many cases as divine. David wasn't, but it was still believed that he was as close to God as anybody. And now he's saying there will be an intermediary. There will be one who comes who is higher than me. There is a, there is a definitely something going on here about a a heavenly king, a king of kings. And, And there's this mysterious prediction that there would one day be a king in David's line whose kingdom would never pass away. Look, whose kingdom never passes away? Every king dies. The greatest of them die. All kings rise and fall. Only one king has never seen an end to his kingdom and never will. David is clearly pointing forward a thousand years to the life, death, and most importantly, the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a powerful mystery that even the most staunch critics and skeptics about Scripture have to reckon with. How did David have this foresight? Jesus uh, addressed this very question, this very Psalm, Psalm 110, that Peter quoted David saying, Jesus quoted it too earlier in Matthew 22. Psalm 110, by the way, the most quoted Old Testament verse or passage in the New Testament. It's the most quoted and mentioned. Let's look what Jesus said about this very same psalm from David. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Check this out. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? It's like Jesus. It's like, is this a trap, Jesus? Like Jesus is sitting there asking them these questions. Like, but of course they have such gumption that they're willing to, they think they can go toe-to-toe with Jesus. What do you guys think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? If Jesus sat right here and said, what do you guys think about the Messiah? None of us would speak up, would we? We'd be like crickets in here, you know? It's like, I don't know. You tell us, Jesus. But they answered. They said, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? In other words, why would David call his own son Lord? That's not how it works. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus said, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply to Jesus. And from that day on, no one dared ask ask him any more questions (laughs) because they got tired of getting metaphorically smacked around by the Son of God. That's got to be humiliating for these lawyers and Pharisees. No one dared ask him any more questions. So here we have Peter who studied under Jesus, bringing the same energy as Jesus. Like when Peter's done with this message, like they, the people that listened, they, they were broken by it too. Broken in a good way, but broken nonetheless. He called the people out. Did you hear how he called them out to their faces? He said, what have you people done? Two months ago, basically, he said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death that's harsh. You guys helped kill Jesus. I mean, is there a worse sin that you can commit? But let's keep in mind who Peter was. Everybody knew this about Peter, by the way. Peter's just about two months removed from his most shameful shameful day on earth as well. Remember Peter? Like we think of him as St. Peter at the pearly gates now, but remember Peter? At the trial of Jesus, when the chips were down, the most important moment of his life, just hours removed from saying, Lord, I will never leave you. I am the rock. I am Peter. At the trial of Jesus, Peter denied even knowing him three times. And then he wept bitterly and ran away, abandoning Jesus after he said he wouldn't. Isn't that something? That was just two months before this. So I don't think Peter is coming after these guys saying, you evil men, what have you done? I think he's saying, I'm in the same boat as you. And like a fisherman would, knowing his audience, knowing their their shame, he's baiting a hook to catch the people God's put in front of him. Now, he's not just telling them what they did wrong. He's also telling them it was all by design. Did you catch that far? It was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is hilarious to me. It's like, all right, guys, guys, here's the bad news. <laughs> the bad news is you did the worst possible thing anyone's ever done or ever going to do. The good news is it was all part of God's plan. And don't you love it when a plan comes together, you guys did the will of God, you just did it horribly, horribly wrong. Like that's, that's, a, very, that's a very, it's a tough thing for us to wrap our minds around, that intersection, right, between God's sovereignty, he knows everything and uh, foreknowledge and all of that, and human stupidity and sinfulness and all. How do we reconcile that? The Bible has no problem with it. The Bible holds those things in tension. And, and this is a great example of that. He's like, look, uh, it was wrong what you did, but thank God he had a plan to save us all. This is Peter not just talking down to them. Peter also, having been redeemed from his own worst sin, He's talking to a bunch of guys about how they can, too, be redeemed from their own worst sin of contributing to the crucifixion of Jesus. And then look what happened. Look how he broke them in, uh, in, in Acts 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. These were people that showed up to protest Christianity. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. What promise? It's forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And he said, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call for all, he says. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful image. With many other words, it says, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. 3,000 converts in his first sermon he ever preached. Goodness gracious, I don't think I had even one in my first ever sermon. I'm struggling with a little preacher envy today. Um, How did he have 3,000 converts, 3,000 baptisms? We're going to have one baptism today in a minute. I'm super excited about it. I'm super pumped about it. Um, but we're not going to have 3,000 baptisms today. That'd be great. Uh, if you, any if you want to jump in, I'm not going to stand in your way. But 3,000 is a lot. How did Peter do that with such a short sermon? Some of you are thinking, well, he preached a shorter sermon, Eric. That was it? <laughs> That's the key. All right. I would just draw your attention to that verse where it says, Uh, where where does it say? With many other words, he warned them. All right, so there was other words that aren't in the script, okay? So, So he didn't hand in his manuscript and have it transcribed. There was many other words, just like there are many, many words to my sermons, okay? So what Peter did to bring so many to repentance and baptism and salvation that day was he leveled with them about their sin and then he gave them the good news What's the good news? That in Christ, every sin not only can be forgiven, but essentially has been forgiven. Why? Because the debt of every sin was canceled at the cross, and the promise of that forgiveness was sealed by the empty tomb. Because Jesus is who he said he was, not just a gifted man and prophet, but the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah come to save us all. We know this because death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to keep him in the ground. Why? Because nature cannot subject supernature unto itself. The supernatural God among us walked out of the grave that first Easter morning sealing the promise of our forgiveness, our salvation, and the hope we have and the power we have in the spirit of God. And and it's not just for us either. Listen, the the most amazing thing about the good news of Jesus is that the worse life seems to you, the better the news is for you. The, The farther off you seem or feel as though you are from God, the the more clear the call home from God is, according to the gospel of Jesus. This is the first time and really only time in history that a movement of God has been for all people altogether, all at once. Your ethnicity doesn't matter here to God, at least not in terms of it being a a deal breaker or an outsider maker. It's not about your, your nationality, or your skin color, or the language you speak, or your religious upbringing. It's not about your past behavior, track record, reputation. It's not about any of those things. In fact, the more of that you've got going on in your past, the more grateful you will be to come home to this invitation that says, come home. All can come. All are welcome, even if even if you're so evil as to have had a hand in the death of the only innocent one. That's the message. Well, what's Peter saying? Peter's essentially saying, guys, guys, I denied Jesus thrice, then I abandoned him to die. You guys helped, you know, with the help of evil men, put him on the cross. But the fact is, Jesus died for every sin, right? We, we believe that Jesus died his Blood was shed for all sins everywhere. That means all of us, in some cosmic way, had a hand in his death. The good news is, no matter how bad it's gotten, how dark it feels, how far you are from home, you're welcome at the table of the Lord. And that's the best news you will ever hear. And that, I believe, is why Peter had such a response to this sermon. That's really the difference that the resurrection Makes many of you know that um, there was a time in my life from age 20 to age 33 when I was still holding on to the form of Christian religion, but I didn't believe in the fundamentals of it or I didn't really have the faith. I had the what, but not the why. Um, I was raised Christian, like many of you were. I was raised in the Bible Belt, preacher's kid, and all that stuff. Went to college, got my world shaken a little by some really crafty professors. And of course, they were religion professors. They always are religion or philosophy professors that really showed me why believing in Christianity is so foolish and only fools believe it. And so at age 20, I renounced my faith. I decided it was foolishness to believe in all that supernatural stuff. So I held on to this version of watered-down, naturalistic Christianity that basically says, hey, it's nice the God is love stuff and all that, I could deal without the book of Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, probably Revelation, Daniel. I could just go on and on, right? I'll take some of the Bible, but not all of it. And I turned my uh, Christianity into basically a vehicle for my own uh, kinds of political leanings. This is a quote, a direct quote, from my senior thesis that I wrote in college in 2001. Quote, "Uh, although I don't believe Jesus physically rose from the dead, all that matters is whether the church bearing his name will rise up to conquer present-day demons like systemic injustice, racism, and mm-hmm. income inequality. And it goes on and on. Um, listen, uh, I know all this stuff has come to the surface recently, DEI and all that stuff. I'm telling you, it was in it was in Christian education a long time ago. Why? Because the devil is a mocker. And he takes godly ideals like equality and he twists them just a little bit. He takes godly ideals like creation care and twists it just a little bit. He'll take godly ideals, you know, like um, loving the immigrant or the stranger among you and twist it just a little bit until it's an idol. And I had a temple full of idols. The only problem is I was God in that framework. And it turns out I don't make a very good God. I don't know if you've ever tried. It's a little bit of a house of cards when you are your own God. And my life internally became a hot mess. Struggle with addiction, um, rage, anger issues, depression, all kinds of things were going on with me. My sermons amounted to often vulgar and angry diatribes, mostly against conservative white Christians who at that point in my, t- in my life were indeed the bane of my existence. And some of you were like, oh, I don't know if I believe this. I've got the audio. I've got the receipts to prove it. <clears throat> I really thought those people were pushing people farther away from the church and farther away from my conception of Of God, it just just never occurred to me to stop and consider what right or what place I had speaking about a God in whom I had no vested interest, whom I refused to worship. That uh, contradiction didn't occur to me until, and if you know the story, I ended up accidentally almost going to the Holy Land in 2013 for the first time. Um, I went for political reasons, and of course, that's where Jesus got a hold of me. The, the reason I want to I share this story with you again is to emphasize the point that the transformation that happened in me on this day, in 2013, 10 years ago, later this day, the reason I was transformed from a guy with idols who wears a purse. You <laughs> say so what? Satchel. It's a satchel? All right. The guys who wear purses say it's a satchel. Um, <laughs> just kidding. So a man whose life was turned upside down by Jesus wasn't because suddenly I realized the whole Bible is true. It wasn't even because suddenly I realized everything Christians had always told me about Jesus was true. It was because suddenly I realized, my God, the resurrection is true. That's where it all turned around. Honestly, that's where everything changed. And it didn't happen because God is so tender and he knows me so well. It didn't happen by way of some charismatic preacher talking to me about it that never would have got a punk like me. It didn't happen because I read something in the Bible and thought, oh, I've been wrong about this book all my life. Like, Leviticus is true. Like, that's not how it happened. Because it would not have happened to a stubborn young man like me. Instead, it happened intellectually. Because that's what God does. He comes after us, just like a good fisherman would, like Peter would, comes after us knowing who we are and what will bring us home. He came after me with intellect, with science, with archaeology, Our guide took us to that place in Capernaum, to that house uh, that they've excavated in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He took us down into that house, and he showed us the writings on the wall. Many of you know, I've talked about these before, the writings on the wall where these first century Christians worshipped. And the writings on the wall said things like, Lord Jesus Christ, God Jesus Christ, Mary Mother of God, and, and other kinds of things indicating that they were worshiping Jesus. That was no surprise to me because I figured, you know, Christians uh, have for centuries, really since the 4th century, Edict of Milan, right? Uh, Constantine. When Constantine made Christianity a state religion of Rome, that's when the Christians made Jesus into a god. Instead of just being a special prophet or a great man, he became god because it's easier to have a religion when your god is god and all that but it was a politically expedient thing. That's what I had been taught. The only problem for me arose when when that guide taught us that those writings on the wall have been dated by archaeologists and scientists all the way back to the first half of the first century. So before the year 50 AD, it's when they were writing all that stuff on the wall. What that meant to me was, in the town where Jesus called home, He called Capernaum home in his adulthood, in the town where everybody knew him before he died. In the months and years following his absolutely historically viable death on a Roman cross, devout Jewish people who knew him before he died were worshiping him as their God posthumously. And if you know anything about Judaism, there's no way to make sense of that. Because that's rule number one. Don't worship a man. Worship God alone. But to worship a dead man, to worship a man who died a criminal's death, absolutely unthinkable. And the only way my little pea-sized brain could make sense of such a mystery was if those people in Capernaum experienced the risen Jesus. That's the only explanation. And you can then go on to say, well, maybe they imagined it or they hallucinated or whatever. And it's up to you to decide whether it's more reasonable that 500 people had the same hallucination all at once or whether the supernatural God actually entered into creation and walked out of the tomb. That's up to you, and I understand why people land on different sides of that issue. For me, it all came crashing down. The world I had built, the world over which I was God came crashing down And I realized, my God, it's all true. And then once the resurrection was settled for me, God, by his tender mercy, took me through the rest of the Bible and started settling that for me as well, took me through the rest of Christianity and settled that for me as well. And if you're sitting here thinking, I can't buy into Christianity, I don't even like the Christians in my life, I I don't like preachers like this guy talking to me, that's fine. Take us out of the picture, go to the tomb, Figure out what you really believe, and don't let yourself make excuses about the tomb like, well, that could not have happened because, you know, supernatural things don't happen because all we are is matter and energy and products of our own evolutionary process that has no guide behind it, no reason or rationality behind it. Ask yourself the question then, if that's what you believe, how in the world you trust what that evolved brain of yours produces if it only produces what it produces because some unguided process of evolution deceived it into producing that, why do you believe what you think? Think deeper questions. Go deeper in your conversations. Seek the real truth. Be willing to doubt your doubts. And I believe you will find something that will blow you away. The same thing I found. I believe you'll find the tomb is empty. And then the Lord, by his tender grace, will guide you along the path toward even more understanding. This is what's so special about Christianity. The resurrection, the risen Jesus, God among us, overcoming death, to show us that not even death is the end, that not even darkness will last, that evil will one day breathe its last breath in God's kingdom, and it will not win. In the meantime, Peter ended his sermon with a warning. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Right? Did you hear it? What's he talking about? Gen Z? Millennials? Boomers? No. No, that's not it. It's not about any one particular generation, although this generation he was talking to, they did kill Jesus, so maybe they have the prize for corruption. I don't know. But every generation is corrupt. The question for our day, at a time when everything seems upside down and nobody knows what's true, no one seems to even know if truth exists and everything's always shifting, changing, under our feet, we've lost our ontological bearings. No one has a true north anymore. In this corrupt generation, how will you save yourself? And the irony of ironies behind Peter's warning that we might save ourselves from this corrupt generation is that the only way in Christ to save yourself is to stop trying to save yourself once and for all. Stop scrambling to save yourself, to save face, to save what you've got, to salvage your own reputation. Stop trying to save yourself and let him save you as only the risen Jesus can. Let him save you. That is my prayer for anyone here today or watching online that's been on the fence and just not real sure. Let him have his way with you. Trust him. Open the door of your heart to him and say a simple prayer like the one I'll lead us in now. Would y'all pray with me? Jesus, I may not know everything there is to know about you. I certainly don't know everything there is to know about the Bible or about the church or I I know a lot of bad things about church history and I've known a lot of not so great Christians and that's um, affected me to say the least. Lord, I just, I want the truth. I want the truth about Jesus. I want the truth about his tomb. I want the truth about what that means for me and my life. So in whatever way I can today, I just open the door of my heart to you. I give you thanks, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.